This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Jason Burns and Access Church in Lakeland, Florida. For more information, visit access.tv. Today we are in part five of a series called The Path of Most Resistance, and here's what I know. Most of us choose to take the path of least resistance in our lives. We want a life that's comfortable. Now look, I'm all for comfort. Your boy loves comfortable. Give me a comfortable mattress, comfortable pillow, comfortable shoes, a comfortable chair to sit in. I love comfort. But the things you want in life are not on the other side of comfortable. The things you want in life are on the other side of challenging. Jesus says, if you're gonna be my follower, you need to know there's a cost to it. It's not the easy path, it's, it's the narrow path, but it's the way that he invites all of us to encounter him. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 16. He said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, there's the word and this is what we're aiming to become. He says, you must give up your own way. Well, let's be honest, that stinks because I like my own way. I like doing things the way I want to do them. He says, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. We said week one, you can't carry your opinion and your cross at the same time. You gotta lay your opinion down at the feet of the cross. We've been talking this whole month about issues that really believers struggle with, issues like giving and forgiving and then rest. If you've missed any of them, go online to access.tv slash messages. You can always catch up there. You can subscribe to our podcast and catch up. It's been a strong series and I've heard from a lot of you how much this series has meant. Today I wanna talk to you about really what is some of the most important thing that you can do if you're actually going to follow Jesus. a couple weeks ago, I had a person ask me a question that kind of just put me back on my heels. They said to me, it's just a simple question. They said, if you could go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? And for years, I've had two places on my bucket list. I wanted to go to Iceland, and I checked that off early this year for my 40th birthday. It was an amazing trip. But the other place I've always wanted to go is I've wanted to go to northern Italy, the Tuscany region of Italy. Now, I've been to Italy before, but I only went to Rome, and we had amazing pizza and amazing gelato and amazing Italian food, and I guess there was some old buildings there too, but it was an amazing trip. But I've always wanted to get to northern Italy. And the sad part to me is my wife and I were planning to go. In 2020, I wrapped up my college, I mean, my, my, my doctoral program. I finished this big dissertation. And the truth is, halfway through the process, I hit a wall. And I was like, I'm done. I'm never writing another word. I'm never reading another book. I will be illiterate from this day on. That's what the point I had reached. And my wife said, well, what if we decided to get like a vacation? Let's, let's go, let's do one of those bucket list trips. Let's do it, and um, what we'll do is we'll celebrate you. So we booked it, and when we hit book on that trip, I, it was like a shot of adrenaline to my soul. I wrote faster, I wrote better, and I got it done. And then, you know, 2020 happened like it did to all of us, and so it didn't happen. But here was my hope. I wanted to get to northern Italy. In northern Italy, there's three major cities. There's Milan, there's Florence, and there's Venice. There's those three cities. But tucked away, about three hours from Venice, there's a little city called Pisa. Pisa is a place that I want to go, and it's only on the map because there is a bell tower there. You've probably heard of it before. It is called the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, I want to get here really bad. In fact, I want to see this place someday. To give you some context, here's what happened. In the 1100s, some men got together and they said, we got this beautiful city, but nobody knows about it. We need to build some structure that people will talk about all over the world, and they'll want to come to see and celebrate. So they said, let's build a bell tower that's magnificent. And so here's what they did. They started building it, but they made three fatal flaws. The first one was they used stones that were too small in the foundation. The the base was too narrow. And then they didn't check to make sure that the ground was fully settled on one side. 
And so they built the first layer of this massive bell tower, and they had this starting, startling realization that it was sitting at a bit of an angle. This was a problem. The foundation was faulty. Now, what would you do if you were going to build a massive structure and the foundation was faulty? You've got two options. Option one is you can tear it down and start over, but I believe the other option was led by a man from Polk County because he said, boys, let's get her done. Let's just make this thing happen. And so they kept building on it. They tried all kinds of things. They thought maybe what we can do is on the side that's leaning, we can make the walls just a little taller. That'll make it eventually even out. The problem is it didn't make it even out. It added more weight to that side. If you were to straighten the leaning tower of Pisa, because of that idea, the tower actually curves. It's kind of funny. The tower, now they finished it, it sits at five and a half degrees off off center, five and a half degrees. About 30 or 40 years ago, the fear was if it ever got to that leaning structure amount of 5.5 degrees, it would collapse under its own weight. So in the 1980s, these engineers spent millions of dollars trying to correct the problem, and they moved it from a five and a half degree tilt to 3.9 degrees, and now people come from all over the world to see this, and everybody that goes wants to take a picture that looks something like this. I wanna take a picture like this, but here's what I've heard. When you go, it actually looks a little bit more like this with everybody trying to get their picture. So funny. And if you want something fun to do later today, Google image search, Leaning Tower of Peace of Funny Pictures, and you'll get pictures like this. People are really creative with their pictures. And I just put this one in just for my wife because I adore her. This is apparently Air Bud goes to Pisa. And anyways, super fun. The dog gets clapped, but nothing else. Cool, whatever. The funny thing about this building is they have spent millions upon millions of dollars trying to correct a problem that they discovered really early in the process. If you get the foundation wrong, everything else is going to have a problem. Now we understand that, don't we? If you have a house that's built on a faulty foundation, you're gonna have problems. If you build a building, a structure, a bell tower on a, on a foundation that isn't properly settled and built, you're gonna have problems. But all of us also have a foundation of our life. We all found our life on certain things. Jesus addressed this one time in the book of Matthew chapter seven. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, pause here for just a moment. There's two things you have to do. You have to hear what Jesus says and put them into practice. Whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. It says the rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Jesus tells a story. If you know the rest of the story, Jesus says another person builds their house, but it's not on a firm foundation. Now, if you grew up going to church or Sunday school, you might have sang a song that said, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and then the foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? And what's fascinating to me is Jesus uses this illustrative illustration saying that there's two builders that build on different types of foundation, and in both situations, what's fascinating, it says, and the rains came and the floods came to both. Here's what this implies to me. No matter what you build your life upon, you're going to face storms in your life. You're going to. You're gonna face challenges in your life. And let me point something out to you. Storms don't create your character. Storms don't build your character. Storms reveal your character. Pain is the same way. Pain reveals your character. This is one of the reasons that Jesus is such a beautiful example. Hanging on the cross between the worst of humanity, what comes out of Jesus? Love and forgiveness. 
This is one of the reasons I admire my wife so much. It's that we've walked through tremendous pain. She has walked through crazy amounts of pain, getting cancer six months into marriage, losing a baby 20-something weeks into a pregnancy. I mean, difficult, painful seasons. And what's fascinating is, it's obvious that her life is built upon the right foundation, and the reason I say that is, when those difficult storms in life came, it revealed beauty in her that I didn't even know was there. Like she's in the hospital knocking on death's door, fighting for her life, and she's encouraging other people. Like there's beauty in her. The question I wanna wrestle with today is this, what is the foundation of my life? What is my life built upon? Like when the rains of life come and you're gonna face rain, you're gonna face challenges, you are gonna face storms in your life, what is your life built upon? Let me say this to you. I believe the most important thing that you can discover, the most important foundational element of your life as a follower of Jesus is learning to hear God's voice. If we are gonna be people who follow Jesus, we have to be close enough to him that we hear his voice. You ever followed someone who was not a good leader? You ever had this happen? A couple weeks ago, I was in Chicago and I preached one night. And after I preached, the pastor goes, hey, let's go get something to eat. And I was like, you had me at hello, let's go. And, and he took off in his car. And I'm like, I'm in Chicago. I have no idea where we're even going. He drove like a bat out of hell. I'm trying to keep up with him. It's hard. But Jesus, he invites us to follow him and to be close, close enough that we hear his voice, close enough that we hear his words. So today I want to wrestle with, if that is the foundation of our lives, how do we hear, how do we hear God speak? Now here's the funny thing. A lot of people, unfortunately, have taken this idea and they've abused it. A lot of people have taken the phrase, God told me, God said, I heard the word of the Lord, and they take this and they apply it to things that God never talked about. One of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And a lot of us grew up thinking that meant that if you like hit your thumb with a hammer when you were trying to nail something, you shouldn't say God followed by some sort of curse word. That's what we thought it is. And that's probably good advice, but that's not what the verse means. The verse means don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means don't put God's name on something that God has nothing to do with. I'll give you some examples. Here's some examples, you ready? Um, it came out in the news a few years ago that a well, well-known, internationally known pastor had been um, using the name of God to get women he wasn't married to to sleep with him. And he would say things to them like, God wants you to use your body to relieve stress in mine. God said, what, what do we do with that? Here's another one. A few years ago, I had a man from our church come up to me and he goes, Jason, you're not gonna believe this good news. God spoke to me and told me I could divorce my wife. I said, what God? People put God's name on things that God has nothing to do with. So here's the question. I don't, I don't want you to get gun shy. I want you to hear the voice of God. Let's, let's talk about how God speaks and how we can know it's actually him. Here's how God speaks. If you have your notes, write this down. Number one, God speaks to us through prayer. I think a lot of us, when we pray, we want to have this big dramatic moment with God, don't we? We want God to part the heavens and for a ray of sunshine to come in, and we want to hear the audible voice of God. Now, can God speak that way? Sure, because he's God. God has never spoken that way to me. I want to show you an interesting moment in Scripture. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, one of the, wise, the most powerful men to ever live, has just come out of a massive episode of depression. If you're walking through depression, read 1 Kings chapter 18 and see how God kind of he beautifully walks him out of that situation he's in. 1 Kings 19, he's kind of coming out of that depression and he has this encounter with God. 1 Kings chapter 19 says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to 
pass by. It's going to be this big dramatic moment. It says, then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But notice this, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Three big, dramatic, demonstrative kind of moments. And God's voice and his presence isn't in any of this. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Okay, look, I don't know how God always speaks, but here's how God typically, usually speaks. It's in a gentle whisper whisper. It's in a quiet voice. Let me give you two reasons this matters. The reason God whispers is because he's near. So often we're looking for, we're looking for God for this big booming voice to yell at us, but you yell when someone's far. You whisper when they're close. You need to be reminded in your moments of prayer that God is close, but he also whispers And this is an interesting observation for us because so many of us fill our lives with so much noise, so much static. And the truth is we're so full of noise that there's no room in our life to hear the gentle whisper, the voice of God. So here's my question to you. Are there any moments in your life when you're not surrounded by noise? Now you want a moment of honesty? I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at it. I love noise. This week I had to travel to speak in Gainesville. I had a two-hour drive each way. You know what I did the whole two hours each way? Phone calls and sports talk radio the whole time. I should clear some space for God. I should have some quiet time in my life, but I tend to do what you tend to do, and I fill my silence with noise. I'm an early riser. I got into a bad habit during my doctoral studies. I wake up every morning, sometimes before 4 a.m., anytime from 4 to 5 a.m. I'm usually awake, sometimes a couple hours before my kids wake up in the morning. I have room and space in my life for quiet. And you know what I tend to do sometimes? I fill it with noise. Think about the way you pray. If you're like a lot of people, you pray, and this would be an example of your prayer. God, help me. God, fix this. God, intervene. I need you. God, step into these circumstances. God, fix this moment. Help, 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 help. And then you feel bad because it's all about you. So you throw in another prayer like, God, feed the hungry children, and God, bless those who are struggling. Amen. And that's it. And prayer becomes a one-way conversation. And really, if you just examine it, it feels like you trying to remind God of the stuff that you feel like he missed in life. Right? Prayer was never a one-way conversation. It was supposed to be a conversation back and forth. When you pray, do you ever create moments of silence when you just sit in his presence and listen for the gentle whisper? The second way God tends to speak is he doesn't just speak through prayer, but he also speaks through our circumstances. So many of us, we walk through difficult times and we feel like God isn't in it, but I just wanna show you through scripture that God is in our circumstances. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. And we wanna understand what's happening, but he says, don't do that. He says, in all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. If you want a path from God that makes sense, trust the one who can make sense out of all of it. Our church really came to be because God spoke in our circumstances. I mentioned a moment ago that my wife got cancer. Six months into marriage, we had a full head of steam. Our whole hope was to go take a college pastor or a youth pastor job somewhere and go from church to church to church and eventually get a church of our own. In the middle of all of that, when we wanted to get out of the city, God spoke to our hearts and said, I'm I'm using this, you don't get it, but I'm using this in your life to prepare you for what is to come. God speaks to us through prayer. He speaks through our circumstances. Here's the third one. God speaks to us through the church. 
And when you write the word church, I want you to use a capital C. Because this isn't talking about just our church. It's about the church, the global church. God wants to speak to us through the church. And here's the funny thing. There is this movement in our culture currently of people feeling like they don't need the church. And they'll say well-meaning things to you like, you know, we don't need to go to church. We don't need to go to a building. You are the church. They say you are the church. But the you in that sentence isn't singular. The you is plural. You, all of us together, are the church. And I just want to call you out if you find yourself in this area of selfishness and consumerism. Because for so many of us, church is about me. It's about me feeling God and me encountering God and me getting something to chew on and me getting something to work on in my life. And some people reach this level where they feel like I've matured out of needing to be in church. Can I say this to you if that's you? You may come to church and not feel like you got anything, but you may be the answer to someone else's prayer. We need you. We need each other. Here's something so funny to me. People will go through difficult times in their life and they'll call the church and be like, can you help? Well, of course we can help. But who do you know? And who loves you and who has your back in the church? You see, when you disconnect yourself from it and you find yourself dying, you find yourself struggling, you find yourself emotionally going through something, will we be there for you? Absolutely we will. But how incredible would it be if you had people that you knew and that you love and that you find yourself intimately connected to? Look at the first church. It says in Acts chapter two, every day they, the first church, continued to meet together in the temple courts, that they gathered together. They broke bread in their homes, which makes me love God because he's not keto. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Like we were called to gather together. The book of Hebrews says, let us not forsake the assembling, the gathering of the saints. Every believer needs four things. Every believer needs a large group. You need church. You need to come be together. We need to grow closer to God in a large format. But we also need a small group. And a small group is when we get out of rows and we get into circles. It's when we share our life. It's when we take the mask off and when we stop pretending. Let me me pause here for just a moment. My goal for our church is that we have the smallest church in Lakeland with the most people. That makes no sense at all, but think about it. The smallest church, what does it mean? It means that no matter how big our church gets, and thousands of people call this church their home now, that no matter how big our church gets, it always feels small because you have someone who knows you and someone who loves you and someone who has your back and someone who cares for you. This week I had a fun thing happen One of my best friends from high school, who I've only seen like one time in the last 10 years, he called me and said, hey, I'm gonna be in town, can we get dinner? And so we got dinner, and as he was telling me about his life, he said, I'm so busy, and he's got a very involved job. And then when I'm done, I come home, and I'm just with my wife and kids, and it's awesome, but he goes, I don't have any friends. How many of us, is this our life? We don't know anyone. Church will come alive for you, when you get into a group. Let me step all up on your toes for one more second on this group issue. Some of you have been consumers of groups for so long and you need to be the answer to someone else's prayer. It is time for you to get off the bench. It's time for you to get in the game. It is time for you to lead a group. Can I tell you all the requirements to lead a group? Are you ready? Write this down. Number one, thoughtfulness. That's the whole list. That's it. Like all it takes is being thoughtful being kind, loving people. We'll train you on everything else, but if you're a thoughtful person, get off the bench and lead a group. 
Here's the third thing every believer needs. You need a large group, a small group, and you need quiet time. Quiet time is when you still all the noise so you can hear from God. The fourth thing is you need is you need a mentor, someone who's ahead a season or two in life of you who can call out of you the things that you can't see in your life. Check this out. I have all of these things in my life. A couple weeks ago, I had lunch at Tapatio's with one of my mentors, and we crushed some chips and salsa, and I left with pages of notes of things that I need to pray about and work on in my own life. Do you have these things? If you wanna follow Jesus, if you want the path of most resistance to be your reality, you need these four environments in your life. So, so the fourth way God speaks, he speaks through prayer, circumstances, the church. And here's number four, ready? He speaks through the Bible. He speaks through his word. So a lot of Christians will say things like, I pray all the time, I never feel like God speaks to me. Let me ask you this question, is your Bible open? Don't say God never speaks to me with a Bible that's closed. His scripture, his word, is 66 books written over 1,600 years by 44 different authors. It is the word of God written to us. It is a love letter from heaven to humanity. Here's the reason this matters. God speaks through his word. But also, remember the stories we told earlier, the man who had an affair, about the man who said God told him to divorce other people? Here's what you need to understand. God's word is so important, and God's word will, God's voice will never contradict his word. His voice, the things he says, you need a litmus test. You need to know if this is actually God speaking, so what you can do is you can take what you feel like you heard from God, and you can compare it to his word, and if it lines up with his word, it probably is his voice. This is the reason all through scripture, there's moments where people reflect on the power, the beauty, and the majesty of the words of God. David says in Psalms 119, he says, your word is a lamp for my feet, and it's a light for my path, if you wanna know the path, the direction, the, the purpose and plan of God in your life, spend time in his word. Some 90 verses earlier in the same chapter, he says, I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is how you keep your life in sync, in rhythm and in harmony with God, is by living in and knowing his word. So let me say this to you, let me ask you this question. What has the final word in your life? When you find yourself questioning a decision, when you find yourself picking who you're gonna vote for, when you find yourself you know, walking through the difficult, murky waters of this life, what has the final word in your life? And I wanna submit to you that God's word is my authority and God's word should be your authority. God's word has the final word in our lives. Look what scripture says. This is Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy and he says this. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for four things. But I'm gonna pause here for a moment. I want you to notice this word, okay? How much of scripture is God breathed? All. Okay, okay, make, make sure this is really clear, okay? If you're to go back to the ancient language of Greek that this was written in, this word all, it translates, it's really interesting, it translates to all. <laughs> it means all of it. And you're like, yeah, 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 but what about the part I don't agree with? Check this out, it means all. All. Thomas Jefferson famously had a Bible that he blacked out and cut out parts that he disagreed with. And I want to say to Thomas Jefferson, wherever you are, Thomas Jefferson, all scripture. But what about the part that doesn't line up with the way I vote? Cool, 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 cool. All. But this part doesn't match how I feel and I feel so, okay, cool, cool, cool. All. All scripture. Not the part you like, not the part you agree with. All scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here's the reason, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants you to have the tools to do the job, the, to live the life that he's called you to live. So here's the four things that scripture does for us. Here's how it helps us. It teaches us to really know and know about God. It rebukes us, which means it warns us. It corrects us. Imagine driving. It's like when you drive, driving is constant course correction. It helps us to navigate this life. And then it trains us. Training is such a big word because a lot of us try to follow Jesus and you can't try your way into following him, but you can train yourself to follow him. So one more time, God's word is my authority. God's word has the final word in my life. If the foundation of my life is hearing the voice of God, the way I hear the voice of God, is by comparing everything that I'm experiencing to what the words of scripture says. God's word has the final word. Let me end with this today. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of James. James is this fascinating, beautiful, poetic, but honestly very practical book in scripture. And there's one verse in this that I'm gonna camp on that is so strong. He says this in the book of James chapter one. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, write this down, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How incredible would our world be if everyone just followed that? How incredible would social media be if everyone just followed that? How incredible would every conversation you have with others be if you were quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry? How incredible would it be? He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, here's what I want you to understand. Anytime in scripture you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is it therefore? He said, here's what I want you to do. Get rid of all moral filth and all the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then here's the verse. This one is a hard one. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen, do. Don't just hear it, obey it. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Might be a blessing for some of us. It says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting, and not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So according to the book of James, and this is so important, listen to me, action is more important than hearing. Doing is more important than hearing. Now I'm gonna step all up on your toes, and this is important. Most Christians are way more educated than they are obedient. Ow! Most Christians are way more educated than they are obedient. We're like, teach me something new. Cool, how's it going at the stuff you already know? So for years, like the number one complaint I got as a preacher was, Pastor Jason, can you, can you preach some deep sermons? Give me something deep, 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 deep. Okay, look, I got a doctorate degree. If you want, we can do a whole series word by word in Greek and ancient Hebrew. We can go through every single word. I can spin your head with knowledge. And then you'll leave here and not apply any of it to your life. Okay, listen to me. Deep is about action, not information. Deep is about doing, not just knowing. There's a whole generation of Christians who know what God's word says, but they don't do it. How about this? 
What if all of us just made this decision that whatever God asked me to do, I'm just going to do that? God, you asked me to give. Okay, it makes no sense. The mental math doesn't work, but I trust you. God, you asked me to forgive, but you have no idea how much they hurt me. Still forgive? Okay, fine. I'll do what you ask. God, you asked me to rest. I have so much to do, but fine. I'll do what you've asked me to do. Depth isn't about knowing stuff. Depth is about obedience. So how incredible would it be if our church just made this decision? Following Jesus looks like obedience. Following Jesus looks like I'll do whatever he says. He calls the shots. I follow. I'm close enough to listen to his voice. I check it against the authority of his word. And whatever he asks of me, that's what I will do. So how's it going in obeying? How's it going? This is the path of most resistance. It's not the easy road, but it is the road that leads to our lives being changed. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me all across this room? So God, give us the courage to not just be hearers and in doing so deceive ourselves. But give us the courage to be doers of your word. And God, in a world that's all about change, and what, give us the courage to be steadfast and to be obedient. God, the foundation of our life is hearing your voice. Help us to hear your voice through prayer, through our circumstances, through the church, and through your word. God, I thank you that as we hear your voice, we can follow close. So give us the courage to swim upstream this week. Give us the courage to create some silence and some space where your gentle whisper can be heard loud and clear in our souls. We thank you for it, God. In 